up everyone? This is Gerald Honeycutt, formerly of the Milwaukee Bucks, and you're listening to Davy Creek on the Westchester Church Podcast. Jesus was inside the temple very early one morning, and he was speaking to many, many, many people who had gone into the temple early that morning. And as happened a number of times, as Jesus is speaking to these people, right in the middle of his teaching, Jesus is completely interrupted by a group of scribes and Pharisees who have come inside. And on this occasion, they are just convinced that at last they have something that is going to capture Jesus. That whether he says yes or whether he says no, he's, they're at last going to have concrete evidence against him. I'm sure everybody here knows exactly what happened, and we don't have the time to list every detail of what what happened on this occasion, but they have a woman with them. We might imagine her hair is very disheveled, perhaps. Maybe she is hardly clothed. Maybe she's not even clothed at all. We don't know. Yet they are dragging a woman into the temple, saying in front of all of these people, Teacher, we have caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it says that this woman shall be stoned. And then maybe we can imagine a wolfish smile formulating on their faces as they say, but what do you say about that? They think that whether Jesus says yes or no, he, I mean, if Jesus says yes or no, he's in trouble either with the Romans or with the Jews. And when the scribes and Pharisees are speaking about adultery and about this woman, they are absolutely right. Because here's what the law says. That if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge this evil from the nation. And so they're not lying about adultery. It says that in the law. This is how serious God is about adultery. Oh, but wait a minute. Jesus sees a red flag instantly that is exposing their intentions. Where is the man? I believe that this woman has committed adultery, and yet the law says that the woman and the man, if this woman just committed adultery, guess what? Then there was another person she was committing adultery with. Where is the man? And we all know what, what eventually happens. Jesus says, as they keep confronting him about this, what do you say? What are you going to say? What are you going to say about this? Jesus says, I want the first one among you who has never committed a sin in his life. Step up here and throw the first stone at this woman right now. Jesus doesn't bite the bait, does he? And slowly we can just see these, these, these genius scribes and Pharisees, that you know, wolfish smile falling and just slowly walking away their stones are hitting the ground. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, Is anybody condemning you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In other words, stop committing adultery. I mean, Jesus does not negate the fact that as he looks at this woman, I mean, he can look at her and say, You have sinned greatly. But so have they. 
You have done terrible, terrible things today. And yet so have they. You deserve to die for the sins that you have committed today. And yet so have they. They are guilty of things too. Isn't it interesting how it is not the literal, physical act of adultery that Jesus emphasizes here. He makes mention of it, but he does not emphasize it. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that adultery, as insidious, as horrible as it is, that is not the only way that a person can sin. And as we will see in just a moment in our text, in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27, what we also hear Jesus saying in so many other words is that that's not the only way that adultery goes down. You can commit adultery in more ways than in a physical sense. And so let's go to our text. Matthew chapter 5, and starting in verse 27, here is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You might, might recall a few weeks ago, Jesus had said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And He continues his thought in verse 27 as he says, that you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And yet I say to you, that everyone who looks with lust at a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away from you because it's better to enter life blind than to go into hell with, with all of your body parts. He says that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it out from you because it's better to enter life maimed then to enter into hell with all of your body parts. I would like to start with, with where he says that, that you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now, I know that our world looks at adultery as something that it can be bad, but under the right circumstances, it, it's, uh, it's just harmless fun sometimes, you know? And yet anybody who's ever experienced it before... Anybody who's ever known anybody who's been through adultery? I'm here to tell you that adultery is horrific. Horrific. Adultery has a 9-11 vibe to it. Where any time anything like this goes down, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, anything like this, where you remember exactly where you were when you heard the news, when the only word in your vocabulary suddenly becomes, What? This is the kinds of faces that are made in the aftermath of something like 9-11, a tragedy, something that is traumatic in this way. This is what adultery looks like right here for all the people who are being inflicted harm as a result of it. it I mean, it is a tragic, traumatic thing to experience. And as Jesus speaks to this Jewish audience, he knew it as well as they knew it, that that God was so serious and so disgusted and repulsed by the sin of adultery that not just one commandment, but actually two out of the ten commandments say, do not commit adultery. Stay away from adultery. Do not commit adultery. We would define adultery as a person who is married, who is having willful sexual relations with another person other than their spouse. And I can tell you all right now that as a minister, 
Anytime that I have ever been anywhere near this thing called adultery, these are by far the most wretched tears that I will ever cry in my entire life. When I have been near a person going through adultery, either the adulterer they themselves or the person who is being betrayed in that way in their marriage, it has kept me up all night long before, vomiting at 3 o'clock in the morning. Adultery has given me the worst nightmares that I have ever had in my entire life. And I can tell you that I went to a seminary where I'll never forget one of my instructors, Monty Pettijohn, stepping up and saying that, that we could line the instructors up. We could show every single class composite graduation picture that has ever gone through these halls, and we could begin telling you horrible stories, many of which were, were students who, who were very once very zealous to do the Lord's work, but then very soon crashed and burned in adultery. In my own experiences, I can also likewise tell you stories that, that, I mean, half the churches that I have been to in my entire life, many churches all over the world, half of them had adultery festering within it. In these two places, I could tell you horrible stories about preachers, about preachers' wives, about elders, about deacons' wives, about church members who look just like us, who left their husbands, who left their wives for a babysitter, women in the church who have left their own husband for their brother-in-law, a youth minister who left his wife and entire family so that he could run off with a girl who was in his youth group. A youth minister who ran off with an elder's wife. If you have never experienced adultery before, either somebody you know or you yourself, you are a very blessed person. Because you do not want to know what adultery feels like. You do not want to know what it's like to wake up in the morning to this endless nightmare all these cataclysmic effects that come as a consequence of it, where you just leave your entire family and everybody who you love in this state of, of hysterics. This is what adultery does in a person's life and in other people's lives as a result. But I want to talk about we ourselves, though. And that is as we as human beings have very strong impulses and hungers for intimacy. And this is a good thing. God created us this way. Sex is one of the most beautiful creations that God has ever made. As a husband and a wife, as two souls mingle, no longer as two, but now they are one, and they mingle together, and they are intimate in this way, that is a beautiful creation of God. Until adultery comes along. Until something or someone comes along who can make our stress, who can make our troubles go away for 45 minutes at a time. Someone or something who can get us off of the treadmill of a monotonous life and make us feel as if we are floating. And, and oh, it just feels so good. And it feels so fun. And it feels like, I mean, just everything in our heart and in our mind and in our lives is complete ecstasy when we're around that person or around that thing. That is until you begin fueling that desire long enough until now it has captured you. 
And now you are just about to crash and burn as a result of it. Adultery will take a wrecking ball to your marriage. It will drop an atomic bomb on the construct and on the happiness and on the peace and serenity of your family. And so you look around and what once was a very happy life and a very happy family existence, now it is complete destruction. It's rubble. It's decay. It's smoke rising to the sky. And leaving in its wake is nothing but the lives of your spouse and your children. And those hearts are now shattered in a thousand pieces on the ground. Even Aristotle who died 300 years plus before Jesus walked this earth, even this, this Roman you know, a pagan a philosopher says that there is no such thing as committing adultery with the right woman at the right time, in the right way. It is simply wrong. He said that 300, like, at, at like 320 BC, but those words sound as fresh and as raw as if it were just spoken now today. I mean, he's absolutely right. There's nothing beautiful about adultery. It is all across Scripture. It is absolutely prohibited. And another writer expresses it this way. Frederick Beekner says that, that we need no urging to choose what it is that will destroy us because again and again, we choose it without urging. We are more than half in love with our own destruction. How drawn we are to the very things that appall us. To use and to exploit and to devour each other like savages. To devour and to destroy our own sweet self. When we're intimate with, with another person, there are chemicals in our brain that, that are released. For, for you women, it's called oxytocin. For us men, it's called vasopressin. When we're intimate with another person, what these chemicals send in terms of a signal in our brains is that this person belongs to me and I belong to that person. And yet where adultery gets very insidious is it warps our minds. It poisons our hearts because now once we've been intimate with this other person other than our spouse, now our brain is very confused. It's thinking, wait a minute, I don't belong to my spouse anymore. I belong to, to her. I belong to that guy who I work with, who I was just intimate with. And now we're all confused. Wait, I belong to my spouse. No, no, I belong to him. No, no, I, I guess I'll, I belong to them over there now. And that's what it does in our minds. And really the problem is, as Jesus speaks, he understands that there are many people who are just like the scribes and the Pharisees who, who like to fancy themselves as being sexually pure in their lives, who like to think that, that they are honoring their marriage vows just because, well, I've never slept with my neighbor's wife, so therefore I must really be something righteous. And so what Jesus is doing here in our text, once again, notice that it's not the literal physical act of a of adultery Jesus emphasizes here. But rather, what he's trying to do for these people is, in so many ways, what he wants to accomplish in the church of today. And that is to get us away from this surface-level, scripture, memorization, churchianity. 
Yes, you can quote what the verse says, but do you understand what this verse means and how it looks in the eyes of God? Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. And he brings that scope on adultery so much closer than we could ever dream. As Jesus reveals and he exposes that, that adultery is actually rooted in the heart. That there is an adultery that is not committed in the sheets of a shaking bed. But rather truly what adultery is, first and foremost, is something that occurs in the X-rated theater of our hearts. That's because the, those same exact people who said that, that I'm honoring God's commands because I've never actually committed adultery, they were the same people who were staring lecherously at, at their neighbor's wives, who were dreaming about being with that person and touching them, who were daydreaming about what it would be like to enter them. And Jesus is saying that I mean, taking other women into your eyes in this way, that is adultery, ladies and gentlemen. That will make you guilty of adultery. What Jesus is saying is that you may have never undressed a woman who is not your wife with your hands before, but you can undress her with your eyes, with your mind, and with your heart, and be just as guilty and be just as much of an adulterer as King David was. And so what does this show us here about adultery? What we see and what we learn about this is that King David's adultery did not start and end in the bed that day with Bathsheba, did it? But rather, David's adultery started, it started on the rooftop. It started that very moment when, when he saw Bathsheba, no matter what her intentions were, it's not a sin to stumble upon something or to see a person who might be attractive to us. We can't help that sometimes unless we, we're going out of our way looking for it. And yet where we go wrong is when we take that next look. David does not look away from Bathsheba. And now when he does that, if we do this, now all of a sudden Bathsheba is the only thought on his mind. Now Bathsheba is, is haunting his every waking moment. And now his only recourse is, I've got to have her at all costs. I don't care what it costs me, I want Bathsheba. And we all know how that story ends, don't we? And it's alarming to me because that, that was King David like 4,000 years ago or something like that. And yet it could be said that, that we have never seen an age in the history of civilization where, where wrongful sexual consumption is more readily available to us than it is right now today. King David had to be up on a rooftop at the exact moment, at the right time, or, or, or as I should say, the wrong place at the wrong time, in order to see Bathsheba. And yet there is a rooftop available to us if we want it. Anytime we want to see it, any specific thing we want to see, it's called pornography. And the great evil of this thing called pornography is that it takes human beings and it dehumanizes them to an object of our personal gratification. And it's available to us night and day if we choose it, if we want it. I mean, it's right there. It's so easy. And yet again, we're, 
we're living in a society, though, that, that doesn't exactly look at adultery as God does. I even read in one book that as long as a love child is not conceived, then it, was it really adultery? That any conceivable sexual act just about is celebrated as correct in our world today. As long as both people had consented to it, whether they were married to each other or not, is really regardless to a lot of people in our world. And yet we know what adultery is in God's eyes now, don't we? Jesus is saying that you could be doing all of the right things outwardly, externally, and yet still have a heart that is very sick, that is crawling and infested with the cancer of lust. And yet I'm afraid that adultery is much closer than even that is. I mean, adultery is closer to us than we can even think. Well, in our text, we had noticed a moment ago how Jesus specifically mentions men lusting after women. And, I mean, this has been the case from the very beginning. And yet, this is not simply just a man problem, is it? This can also be a female problem. Just like gossiping is not exclusively a female problem. Some of the most malicious gossips that I will ever know have been men, not women. Women can have affairs too. Wives can have affairs too. And this is also not just a young person problem either. Because I don't care how old a man might grow to be. He might be 84 years old. But he can see a young woman who has, who has a certain figure and a certain size that, that he might be attracted to. And, and that 84-year-old man can actually lust and stare and actually feel as if he were a 19-year-old man all over again. This is something all of us can fall prey to if we're not careful. And yet, really where this gets alarming for us is that it's not just improper conduct in a sexual sense as far as adultery goes. And I'd like to go back to one, one of those Ten Commandments, the very last command. Notice how it says that, how it mentions that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, but it also says, or their house, or their servant, or their ox, or their donkey, or, or notice how it culminates, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so you can look at another person who is living the life that you want to live. You see how successful that they are in their business. You see how they are living in your dream home, driving your dream car. And now you are consumed with this lust. I've got to get what they've got. I don't want them to have it. I lust after fame. I lust after success, whatever it might be. This is just as adulterous as improper sexual conduct is. You see, really, whatever our strongest of desires are, whether it is for, for God or for spouse, or it is for, for another person or for, for an object, whatever our strongest, most, most fervent desire is, that is what is driving this entire human machine, for better or for worse. In the book of Hosea, God tells one of his prophets, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. And the reason why God is doing this is because he sees how widespread, not, not so much sexual conduct is, but idolatry. Their idolatry was their adultery. 
And God says, I want your, your marriage to a prostitute whose name is Gomer to be a living symbolism of Israel's idolatry. And I know that a lot of times in the American church, we, we, for whatever reason, we try to sanitize what the Scriptures say. Yet I will not sanitize it. And yet out of respect for, for a child who is here this morning, I will just mention the letter that the word starts that God calls his people. It starts with a W. I'll just let you use your imaginations, all the rest of those, those letters, but God calls them this. He says that you think that you are the temple of God, but I'm telling you that you are a house. You guys are a bunch of, and that's what he calls them. Yet having said that, Hosea is a beautiful book because even though his wife has been sleeping around on him left and right, Hosea finds, I mean, he tracks his wife down to the slave market, brings her back as his wife. And in so many ways, I, I love that woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Because in so many ways, we are that woman caught in the act of adultery, aren't we? We don't know how that woman lived the rest of her life, but she could have said that, that what amazing love and grace that Jesus has for me, that he would love a just like me. And there's not a person here in this church or, or in all of the Lord's church who can't also say that same thing. What amazing, lavish love and grace that God has for a like me. Amen. And I'm amazed at that. You see, the reason why we need to let go of any kind of adultery in our hearts is because we know where it results in. Adultery results in destruction and in death. Now, Jesus says that if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. So, do we need to take this literally? I mean, you can speak to me. It's okay. I mean, is, is Jesus saying that the moment that we see a woman on campus or at the store or at work or wherever it has to be, that we need to just gouge our eyes out and be a blind person for the rest of our lives? or that we need to mutilate our bodies, or that we men need to become monks and live up in the mountains somewhere and grow to hate women in order not to lust after them. Is that what Jesus is saying? Jesus, as he does oftentimes, is speaking hyperbolically about what we need to do. His point is this, is that if there is anything that is destructive that we are lusting after, other than God or our spouses, in terms of our desire. He says, you've got to uproot that. How this might look like in our own present day is change your environment. If you can't change your environment, lose that person's phone number who's been calling you or texting you, whatever it might be. Change your number. Get rid of your smartphone. Get rid of your computer if you are having problem with pornography. Get rid of your smartphone and get a jitterbug. And if that jitterbug causes you to sin, bring the landline back and get that old phone where you got to crank one number at a time. Do whatever it takes. 
If you are attracted to a person who is not your wife, do not allow yourself to be alone with that person. Jesus is saying, stop playing the fantasy game in your minds. Shut down, desecrate that X-rated theater in your hearts and in your minds, no matter the cost. Because what Jesus says is that if you allow, if you continuously fuel the flames of lust and adultery in your heart, it winds up, it, it will eventually reach hell. And in this day and age, what Jesus would have said, as he says, hell is Gehenna. And just in case if anybody's ever been curious about what, what hell looks like, I have a picture of what hell looks like right here. Here's what hell looks like. This is a picture of hell right here. Now, 2,000 years later, it looks beautiful. It looks like the sound of music is about to unfold there, but 2,000 years ago, this was a garbage dump at Jerusalem. This was a place that was described as the worst place on earth, where there were fires continuously blazing, the worst smell that you can imagine, dogs fighting over corpses and bodies that had been dumped there. This was a terrible, horrible place, horrific place. And yet I believe what is lost so much when we read this is we just read this and we think, okay, if I am an adulterer and I remain that way, one day I will go to hell. But I believe so much more what Jesus is really saying here is that if you, you fuel the flames of lust and adultery, that your life will be a living hell on earth that your very life is going to resemble Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, and hell itself. It was James who says that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then sin, notice where it results. After it is full grown, gives birth to, and let us say it, death. We will find ourselves in moments where, whether it's another person who's not our spouse, or it's something that is trying to get our eyes off of Jesus, something in our minds that's going to be like, you can get away with it. Your spouse is never going to know that you're doing this. It's going to make you feel so alive and so happy and so free. All it takes, you just got to take three or four steps outside of your marriage and then three or four steps back into your marriage and no one's gonna know and yet then comes the cover-up then comes lie after lie after lie after lie to your spouse and to your family to your children but then your anniversary rolls around and you tell the world how much you love your darling husband, how much you cherish your darling wife, when all along, just last month, just last week, just last night, you were in the hotel room with that other person. You were making love to them in the shower. You were in bed with that other person. And I mean, when you are in the midst and in the clutches of adultery, that is going to, to bring a guilt that will devour every square crevice of your soul. You will be able to feel this guilt burning, engulfing in your bones. And 
I mean, that just sounds like such an exhausting, hellish way to live. And yet that's what happens to King David, isn't it? After he had been with Bathsheba, he tries to cover it up, doesn't he? That leads to Bathsheba's husband being killed in a very deceptive way to just get rid of him. We know that the child who was conceived did not live. We know that generations of David's family were affected. We know that David spent that entire night with his face bowed down in the dirt, weeping, lamenting his soul out. All because of that one single solitary act to act on that impulse and call another wife's or call another man's wife to his bed. And so if we don't want this to be our life, we I mean it takes a covenant. We've got to make a covenant with our eyes. And I love so much Job's attitude as he goes through all of this stuff. Job says that I've made a covenant with my eyes. It's just like the Lord's Supper. It's something that, that I renew on a weekly, daily basis. I will not gaze upon a woman who's not my wife. Likewise, we've got to make a covenant in our minds. David, we believe, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, says, completely changes his mind and his heart around, says that, that I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Then notice his change in attitude. I hate I hate the work of those who fall away. What do we hate? We hate racism. We hate corruption in the world and in politics. But King David says, I hate the work of those who fall away. I hate what I once did. Lastly, I'm not going to read the whole verse, but we've got to make a covenant with our bodies. In these moments when, when we might be tempted, we like to think that our bodies belong to ourselves, but... The way this verse ends is actually, and as we read elsewhere, actually our bodies belong to our spouse and our bodies as, as holy temples belong to God. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, yes, those members, as instruments of righteousness to God. If we were just to think, this body does not belong to me, this is a holy temple of God. And I'm going to conduct it in that way. It was St. Augustine of Hippo who said, Our hearts are absolutely restless until they rest in you, O God. So I just want to say that there are a lot of people we've known who will choose destruction and adultery over life.
and I mean so many people who we will know in our lifetimes who will think that I can have it both ways. I can live with feet in both worlds. I can live in the flesh as well as in the spirit. And that's what happens. And yet there is going to come a time, if it hasn't already in our lives, where the very things that make us weak, that make us want to lust, will be presented before us. And the person hanging on for dear life now is going to be us. Wherever we might be weak this morning, whatever it is that is calling out to us, whatever it is in our hearts, what lust that does not belong in our hearts, I can almost hear the voice of our Heavenly Father tenderly saying, calling out our names, and then calling out our names once again, saying, let it go. Let it go. Is this thing worth missing heaven for? No. If I were to do this thing, or if I were to be with this other person, would that live in celebration and in tribute to the crucifixion of Christ, to, the, to his empty tomb and to the Eucharist? No, it would not. And so in closing the last question that we need to ask ourselves with these things that, that, that for whatever reason we hold on to is what am I going to slay on the altar? Because no matter who we are, we are making sacrifices on the altar. And so as we look at adultery, am I going to lay my, my spouse, my marriage, my children, my very reputation on the altar and slay it and bludgeon it? Or am I going to lay all correspondence and communication with this person who I am committing adultery with? Or will I lay this, this, this very strong desire for retribution? Or will I lay that website on this altar and crucify that instead? We refuse to fuel the flames of lust rather than living and making our lives a living hell with death. We will enjoy life and peace in Jesus Christ. And our marriages and our lives as Christians will never be happier.